working with a, a mountains series for a few weeks now, and uh, this is the fourth week where we find ourselves at now. Uh, if you grew up or if you live, obviously you do, in West Virginia, you know that there's mountains everywhere, you know, um, where we live at. And it was so great, you know, we're coming up on a year now uh, when Kara and I moved here to, to this area from Ellicott City, and it was just such a, a shock, you know, coming here because everywhere in Morgantown, there's hills, there's mountains, you know, everywhere you go, there's ups and downs. Everywhere you go, there's potholes. Okay. Um, we all know that. And those can be kind of like canyons, depends on what road you're on, which back road, especially sometimes you'll get lost in those things. Okay. Um, but last week we, we talked about the Mount of authority and the understanding that we gain when we fully embrace the transfigured Christ as the disciples did that day on Mount Hermon, what scholars believe to be Mount Hermon, that high place, that high mountain that they talk about. Um, at this moment, they witnessed a, a momentary metamorphosis of their Lord, uh, you know, their friend, their healer, their colleague in ministry. And now he, he was then a, 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 a full representative of who God was. He was the fullness of God in that moment. And they understood in this moment that we see in Matthew 16, 13, um, that he was the true Messiah, the Son of God. That was the Mount of Authority. We also grew to understand the authority that we possess as believers um, and what Jesus did through his life, death, and resurrection. We came to the realization of the power, the power that we possess, okay? The power that we possess as a child of God um, who has also seen Jesus for who he is and who he's meant to be in our everyday lives. He's our Savior. He's our friend. He's our ever-present help in time of need. He is meant to be in our lives every single day and every single way, right? He gives us this, he's given us this authority, this power to do greater things. When we left off last week um, with that very understanding that Jesus is still calling us, as he did in John 14, 12, to do greater things. And these greater things come by way of faith. They come by way of faith. Faith in, in and through the only one who can give us the ability to do these greater things because he is our source. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the author of greater things. We didn't stop there, though. As you may remember, at the end, we concluded with a very poignant portion of Scripture that is found in the book of James, chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Um, and in this excerpt um, from James's writing, we receive a very clear message that having faith is absolutely essential. Having faith is a non-negotiable. You can't be in this life with him without faith. You got to have faith. You all started singing it, didn't you? Yeah, I know you would. Okay. You're like, no, what are you talking about? Bear with me. Okay. There it goes. In, in unison, it's like a choir. I didn't know the church had a choir. Okay. All right. You can't do it without faith. Believing in God is great. Believing, that's what faith is. It's a non-negotiable. But as James says in verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, okay, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. A lot of times people don't want to be known as doers. I'm a doer. Anybody else a doer in here? If you're not doing something every day, if you don't like have some goals, if you're not checking off some line items on a list, you basically your day was a wash. Anybody with me on that? 
Okay, it's not a time to point fingers, but go ahead. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I see that hand. Bless you, sister. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a doer. And sometimes for me, I can skip the believing and jump to the doing, right? But it's essential for us to understand that faith without works, which means they need to be coupled together, is dead. Faith without corresponding action is a dead faith. Look at Jesus. Look at Abraham. Look at yourself. Faith without some corresponding action, without some work in your life, is dead. We have to do something with our faith. We have to act. Which brings us to this mountain that we face today. Now understand something about this mountain. It's not the highest mountain we'll ever climb. And this is so hard to articulate for me. Um, because, you know, in, in these, these last weeks, I literally found a specific mountain with a specific name, with a specific thing that happened. This mountain is far different. This mountain is hard to be categorized because it's not necessarily this one-name mountain, okay? It's not this, this one-named, one uh, you know, summit. It's not this one-named thing. It's ambiguous. It's hard to wrap our minds around. It's hard for us to understand. But bear with me, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It doesn't have a snow-capped summit. It's a mountain that many people climb, and they climb it daily, with many folks with them along the way for this journey. It's a common mountain that we will most likely traverse more than any other, and we typically see this mountain following some great moments, some real mountaintop experiences with God or in life. This mountain is called the Mount of Uncertainty. Think about that. You're like, well, last week, are you bipolar? I don't think so. Um, I haven't had a test to determine. But you said last week you were talking about authority, right? And does, isn't that pretty definitive, Justin? That seems, what are you doing to me here? You're confusing me. Welcome to my world, okay? Um, but you talked about authority and that this power that we have within, that we can do great things and all this stuff. And now you're talking about uncertainty? But again, with this mountain, it's so common. It doesn't fall in the sixth percentile, right? Kind of thing that we were talking about with these mountains. Because uncertainty is this thing that exists everywhere. Especially following this moment when we realize, I have seen the transfigured Christ in my life. I have authority. I'm on a mountaintop. I'm in a place that I've never been before. Guess what happens in that moment? The largest target possible has been drawn upon your back. And what happens after that? The enemy says, I know where to shoot. I know what to shoot them with. I'll shoot them with doubt. I'll shoot them with uncertainty. Here we find ourselves at that mountain today. I can tell you, I've been there many, many, many times. We've all understood what uncertainty looks like because we've climbed that mountain. Though it is not the climb at the tallest peak possible, we've climbed that mountain many, many times. And again, almost daily. And I think about this mountain uh, and how many times I've been there, it's, it's one of those things that I feel like, you know, I don't know if you're like me, that even Siri can't help me get out of it, right? Siri can just about get you everywhere now, all right? Non-iPhone users are like blasphemer. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, but Siri is great for the most part. This is one of those places that can't even locate you, can't even find you to get you out. There's no point of reference, uncertainty, a hard place to be. Even with deep understanding of the power that we possess as a Christ follower and someone who has his spirit living within us and within me, I find it hard to do the right thing or at least 
to find enough trust and belief that they'll help me through. Why? Why does this happen? Why do we find ourselves at uncertainty so many times? Can you identify me with me on this? Anybody? Were you like, should I take a left? Should I take a right? Should I go to this college or should I go to that college? Okay. Should I take this job or should I take that job? Okay. Should we buy this house or should we buy that house? Or should we stay in the same house? You know what I'm saying by that? Should we fill in the blank? Uncertainty. This is a mountain that you will climb almost daily, almost daily and often. Why is it so difficult? Because there are so many unknowns, so many unknowns to this life. Well, what we're going to do today, what I'm here to let you know is that we are not alone on this journey. And God has set a, a biblical precedence for this understanding for us. Um, and we see some, some folks in the book of 1 Samuel that felt the same way we feel at times when things being unpredictable, unknown, and most of all, uncertain. Today, we look at the lives of Jonathan um, and a friend that was simply known as the armor bearer and how they put their faith into action in the midst of some pretty intense circumstances. In just a few moments, we'll be recounting uh, the times of uncertainty that Jonathan and the armor bearer experienced as they found themselves in a difficult place found in 1 Samuel chapters 13 and 14. But before we do that, before we dive into that story, it's important that you understand who these key players are, that you understand the background and the context of what this, this, this story you know, emerges out of. So here we go with some background. Now, what I want you to do, okay, this is statistically proven that after the age of five, this ability to imagine begins to decrease and decrease and decrease and decrease as we grow older. Why? Because we are so stuck in things that are tangible, you know, things that we can move, that we can touch, that we can bend, that we can break, what have you. Um, but what I want you to do, okay, is, is, you know, really just spark your imagination real quick. I'm going to paint a picture of the story, of the background and the context and the situation and the key players. And what I want you to do is I want you to immerse yourself in it. Okay, because this is how I read the word. Whenever I'm reading the Bible and I see these kinds of stories, you know, I begin to smell the smells. I begin to feel the textures. I begin to, to see the, these people running around and I, and I begin to formulate what they look like and, and how they may have dressed and what they carried with them and all those kinds of things. So I want to challenge you to that this morning, okay? So, so leave what is known and go to the unknown for a moment. You know, open up your imagination and journey with me, all right? This story takes place in the book of 1 Samuel which covers a unique time in the history of Israel. This was a time that Israel was moving from a theocracy to a monarchy. They had requested to have a king like the other nations that surrounded them. You see, for some about 338 to 385 years, this is what scholars believe, uh, Israel was governed and led by judges. These judges led the people of Israel into a place of staying true to God, which is a place of conviction. Um, they helped them fight for their deliverance from foreign oppression. And they helped them to set up standards of living to aid in the administration of a God-focused system of life. The, the last of these great kings, of the, excuse me, these great judges was named Samuel. And he was a character with a, a pretty vibrant history. His life was filled with a lot of neat things, if, if you want to say that. He was a guy whose mom, Hannah, back in the beginning of the book of, of 1 Samuel, was found to be a barren woman. She could not have kids. Um... And in those days, if you could not produce a child, it was like a scarlet letter on you. You know, you, you were just nothing to culture because you couldn't bear children. You know, you, you didn't have anything to give your husband in a sense, is what culture looked at, at ladies like then who could not bear children. 
So she promised the priests of the time, Eli, that if God would open her womb and give her a son, she would dedicate this child to the Lord's service once he was weaned. God opened her womb, gave her a son, and as you already know, called him Samuel. Samuel grew up in Eli's house and ministered with him. He was essentially a, a priest in training. Now, as Samuel grew older, uh, he would, in fact, take over for Eli as Eli's sons were wicked, wicked, wicked people and would eventually die because of their wickedness uh, and were not fit to be judges over Israel. Sadly, Eli died too as he received news that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines, Israel's enemies, basically from the beginning of time. Now, the Philistines, now picture this with me, were an aggressive, warmongering people who occupied a part of South uh, southwest Palestine between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. Are you seeing this? Have you ever looked at a Middle Eastern map? Uh, the Jordan River basically goes down the middle. Mediterranean Sea is to the left. So these guys were occupying basically that area in between. Okay, uh, They were continually a thorn in the side for the people of Israel. With time, the Philistines moved more inward from the coast as they were known as sea peoples originally and were taking more ground as they set up cities for themselves with self-governing kingdoms. So you see this, what's happening around Israel. They're looking around, they're saying, huh, so kingdoms, kings, okay. They operated separately unless they needed to bind together for a common fight. And a fight with Israel was a good and common fight that they would pick together. The Philistines were also known um, for the amazing talent of working with iron by making weapons, repairing those weapons, and also making equipment, farm equipment, things that people needed to work the land. Because of this gift, Israel often employed the Philistines to sharpen their swords and fix their farm equipment made from iron. Remember that. This will be significant later in the story. So while the Philistines were at war with the Israelites, they captured the Ark of the Covenant, and it brought them no luck whatsoever. They thought, well, if we add this to our other gods that we serve, we'll just put another god in the room and everything will be perfect. So they moved the ark around to their different kingdoms. And what happened as a result? Sickness, sickness, sickness. They realized that this is not a good thing to have around us. This thing has power. This thing is not a lowercase g, okay? This must be an uppercase g. I'm getting rid of this thing. And we're going to send it back, right? They said, give it back. It may be good for Israel, but not for us. So they sent it back to Israel in a place called Kareth Jerem, where it remained for 20 years. So you think about this. For 20 years, things were kind of kind of calm, kind of peaceful uh, for, for Israel is what you kind of see as you read Scripture. Things were kind of beginning to calm down a little bit for them. You know, the Philistines weren't messing with them too much because they realized, hey, this ark thing is pretty powerful. So if they got the ark and God who's in it kind of thing, because that's what the ark represented, the power of God, then I don't necessarily want to mess with them. Let's just chill on this for a moment. 20 years. After this time, Samuel sent forth the challenge to the people of Israel to repent and turn from their sin and turn back to God. He, Samuel was a prophet. You know, he was a priest too. He was a guy that said, hey, look, I'm going to tell you some hard things. Why? Because God loves you and I love you too. So here's what you got to do. You have to repent. You have to turn from your sin and turn back to God. And they assembled together. What happened was unity began to happen when these folks began to repent. They assembled together. They came to a place. What this did was then get the, the attention of the Philistines. They're like, you know what? These people were messed up 
for 20 years and a hot mess and all, you know, broken and fractured. But I see they're starting to come together. Maybe they're ready to fight again. You see this picture with me now? Are you building it in your mind? You see this, these things beginning to, to, you know, to climax, to come to a point. Um, and you get this visual of, of what's happening in these people's lives. There was a fight that ended with God showing up in a major way that brought peace between Israel and the Philistines. And that was just for a short time. As Samuel served and grew older, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel, but they didn't really last at all. Why? Um, it was at this point that the people grew weary of these characters because they weren't like Samuel. They didn't have, they didn't have what Samuel had. They didn't have that type of relationship with God that Samuel had. So they were thinking, there's no way that these guys can lead us. There's no way that these guys will help us fight. They don't have God on their side, so how in the world do I want them with me? You get the picture now? You seeing this? So they asked that God would give them a king. And this hurt Samuel. This hurt him because he's like, this has been working for a long time, hasn't it? This is something that God had in mind. Judges, that we would help you, that we would lead you. You want a king. Oh, you want to be like the other guys. You just want to be like the other kingdoms that you may think they're winning. You may think they have success, but they don't have God. God is your king. Do you realize this, Israel? Do you understand what you're doing by saying that you want a king? You're not, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They want a monarchy. They want a man in place versus a theocracy the man in place, God. He says, Samuel, don't take it personal, buddy. I'm used to it. Remember when they left Egypt? Ever since the beginning, they're all about their own selves. They want to do what they want to do. They build up their own altars. They build their own gods. They do whatever they want. I'm used to this. So give them what they want. I'll bless it for now. Give them what they want. We'll give them a king. If that's what they want, we'll give them a king. It was at this point that Samuel was about to install uh, King Saul, um, over as king over Israel. Um, Saul was a handsome fellow that stood ahead above others and was a notable character from the tribe of Benjamin. So they're like, look, this is the poster, job, poster child for a king. He is, look at him. He's taller. He's more handsome. That alone will give us victories. Come on, Samuel. He's the man. You see, you see what's happening here? Nobody else reads it like that? I do. Okay. Um, it's really a lot more fun when you do it like that. Okay. He's like the star quarterback. The, the best recruit ever. You know, this guy will be amazing for us. Have you seen the way he, he wields a sword? Have you seen the way he works that thing? It's humongous. It's made by the Philistines. It's made of iron. It's, it's humongous. He's awesome. That's the guy we need as king, Samuel. He's like, all right. Is that what you want? That's what you get. So at this time, we see um, Saul's life after he takes, you know, over as king. Uh, it changed drastically. There's a moment when he's anointed and he's filled with the Spirit of the Lord, is what Scripture says, to do great things in the midst of this kingdom. Sadly, sadly, as Saul's influence grew and his renown, he began to believe his own press. Saul began to believe. He was on, on his iPod, he had one. It, it, the song was on repeat. I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. You ever heard that? My kids sing it to me. I'm like, you got to stop about 30 minutes, okay? Um, he, be he began to believe that he was the man. Think about this. 
It was certain that God would act on his behalf and his mind. It was certain that he was filled with the Spirit. It was certain that he was going to do some great things, okay, because God appointed me too. So what? Who are you? And the exact things that God warned them would happen if they went under a monarchy began to happen with the plunder and all these things where everything was Saul's at that point. Everything was the king's. It wasn't the king's with an uppercase G, uppercase G, God. So with this, he became so prideful in this 42-year stint as king um, that he began to fall in its place. So we pick up in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel with the mention of Saul's son, Jonathan, who had just attacked the Philistine outposts at a place called Geba. And, of course, what did Saul do being filled with pride? I did that. That was me. I was the one that attacked the Philistines. I'm the man. I'm the man. I'm the man. Okay, you air five. Psh, there we go. All right, you're with me. We'll hang out later, okay? Cafe, grab some coffee on the way out. It'll be good. Somebody knows what's up. So when the Philistines got word of this, they were ready to fight as usual. The Philistines assembled. Now get these numbers with me. 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and so many soldiers that they were said to be as numerous as the sands on the seashore. So at this point, everybody, everybody including Saul, was scared to death. We see Saul and his men hiding in a valley pass in caves, thickets among rocks and cisterns, trying to hide from death. Some even crossed back over the Jordan River out of God's provision and his protection. They already crossed that one time before to come into the promise. And there they are, so scared, so filled with fear, they're hightailing back across the river. I don't even know. I mean, think about it. It probably didn't part for them that time. You know, they're just swimming across and stuff and all kinds of crazy things happening because they're so scared. Saul had effectively led Israel to a place of fear and they camped there for seven long days. You ever watch shows like Survivor and stuff like that or, or any of those shows where people are just sent out into the bush to just try and live for like a set amount of time? I can't imagine that. Can anybody else imagine that with me? They say, all right, you got to last here 15 days. I'd be like hour three, first day, I'm about to go crazy. Anybody else? Would you be that way? Like somebody took my iPhone. I'm mad right now, all right? How am I going to, you know, no, I'm just kidding. But how? I got to make a fire. I got to create a bow saw thing. And I got to, how in the world? This ain't happening. These guys for seven days without any food or anything were hiding. And cisterns and, and any okay, snakes, West Virginia, snakes. Anybody know what I'm talking about? These things are wild. It's wild and wonderful, faux show, okay? As they crawl across my driveway, all right? We don't believe that you touch any venomous thing and you won't be bit. That don't happen here. We don't handle no snakes, okay? The way I handle snakes is I handle snakes, all right? And here's the thing. Imagine up in those rocks and clefts and ugh. Can you imagine that? Now your skin's crawling, isn't it? My mother-in-law is like, I hate you. I didn't want to imagine that right now, okay? Spiders, rats. Ugh. This is how I read. The Bible can be cool, okay? Read it with me. Seven days. And it was at, at the end of those days that Saul made an egotistical rash move and he made a sacrifice to God. 
a burnt offering. This was something that was reserved for the priest. He could not wait for Samuel. He could not wait for the priest, the person who was supposed to make a sacrifice. He still thought that I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. You getting it? Even Lee's up in there with it. Lee's like, what? All right. Rose's like, yes, he does. You should see him. He can dance. My grandmother, she was the sweetest when I was young. She said, back in my day, we used to do the jitterbug. Anybody heard of the jitterbug before? And she started going. And she's this little French lady, you know, sweet self with a hairy mustache. You know what I mean? She loved to kiss you. And you're like, you got to nair that thing first, Meemaw. I love you, girl, but dang, you know. As we sidetrack for a while. He made a rash decision thinking that he was the man. He was disobedient in that moment, and that was the day that would eventually cost him everything. So we see the story begin to build. We see an epic showdown about to happen between the Philistines and Israel, and we see it played out in an unusual, an uncertain kind of way. So here's the scene. Saul, Jonathan, and the fighting men, now envision this with me, were staying in Gibeah which is about 2,754 feet above sea level. That's a pretty high place still, okay? Are you with me on that? Colorado, I know, like 15ers. But you don't know what you're talking about. That's blasphemy right there. They're above sea level while the Philistines were camped at Michmash. Now, remember when I told you before that the Philistines were the folks that would help Israel uh, with their war implements and also their farm implements as well? So this left Israel with absolutely nothing to fight with. Nothing. Nothing. The only swords that existed were two. One for Saul, one for Jonathan. They had nothing. They were hungry. They were mad, I'm sure. They were in a hole. They were in a nasty place with all kinds of craziness happening. And they have nothing. And a war is about to break out between their their arch nemesis of life, the Philistines. Two swords for 3,000 soldiers. That, my friends, is crazy. So now, with all of that background, I just literally explained to you the book of Samuel from that point on. That was scripture, paraphrased. But now we move into 1 Samuel 14, uh, verses 1 through 17. And you'll see it on your screen. And follow along with me if you can. I'm going to explain some things along the way in this as well so you get the story even more. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migran. With him were about 600 men. Now understand this with this visual again here. You see Saul, this big old dude that was ahead above everybody else, hiding out underneath a pomegranate tree, right? Wanting some shade. Just like, well, just sever my losses. I'm just going to hang out here on the pomegranate tree. Maybe something will fall off every so often. Feed me a little bit. I'll be good to go. You know, I'll, I'll be fine. I'm in migrant. I'll be fine. What did migrant mean? Listen to this. Migrant means a place of fear, right? And also another meaning for this was throat. And you think about this. They were literally choking out in life at this point. Saul was like, I'll just die here. This will be fine. I'll die here, right? No big deal at all. Among them was Ahijah, 
who was wearing an ephod. An ephod was a garment that priests wore that helped to utilize and help determine God's will for them. He was the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahiatub. These are fun words. Son of Phinehas and the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. Think about that. He's sitting there. He's getting stir crazy thinking, all right, look, we got this great faith and we're doing nothing with it. Um, why are we sitting here, Dad? What are we doing kind of thing, right? Do you get the, the visual with me? On each side of the past that Jonathan, um, excuse me, no one is aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the past that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. Doesn't say how big. Doesn't say how wide necessarily. But it was a mountain. It was a cliff that was there. One was called Bozes and the other Senna. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other toward the south um, toward Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. That's how they referred to them a lot. Um, Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, as Omer Bear said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, Come then, we will cross over toward the men and, and let them see us. If they, if they say to us, Wait here until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look! Philistines looked down at them. Look! Look at these people. Who are they? This guy has one sword. His armor bearer doesn't have anything. Who are these people? Who do they think they are? Look at them. Right? Look at them. The Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, followed as the armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about a half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army. Those in the camp and field and those in the outpost and raiding parties and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul, okay, said to the men who were with him, muster the forces and see who has left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. Isn't that like crazy epic? Do you read that story and you're just like, wow. He knew the numbers. Jonathan knew how many people were against him. He knew what he had. He knew what he didn't have. Okay? But what he didn't know, the uncertain, was how it would play out on the other side of that cliff. There's a couple things that I want to share with you guys today um, from that portion of Scripture um, that... I think are uh, really the the things that drive this thought home. You know, I was thinking about this at the beginning of the week 
And this, this, this story of Jonathan and his armor bearer popped out to me because as I walk through life and I, and I walk with authority, knowing who I am in Christ, I know what follows most times is uncertainty. I know that I, you, I've had great, great success, great you know, battles that have been won, that God has won for me. But I know that the enemy is alive and well. He is the thorn of my flesh, and he's been there since the beginning of time, trying to peck at me and trying to chip away at me and try to get me by myself and to get me think, thinking that you are alone, that you don't have authority, and you can do nothing in this situation. What do you think you're doing? Do you really believe this? There's a few things that these guys confronted within themselves in this portion of Scripture that forever changed their lives. And I feel, I mean, it's not like, you know, oracles from heaven, but these are some pretty pretty poignant things that I think will really challenge us this morning as well. We read in the beginning of that portion of Scripture in 1 Samuel, um, really in the, the very first verse there, um, chapter 14, one day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young armor bearer, right? Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. One day. One day is all it takes. One day of having enough. One day of just being tired of, of the frustration, being tired of the failure, being tired of the threat. One day is all it takes for you one day to see God act in an amazing way on your behalf. One day. It's almost the Bible equivalent to the classic movie line, Once Upon a Time, if you think about it. It's hard to put into words, right? But we live our lives um, with this profound sense of destiny when we think of one day, right? Do you ever have those one days? One day, I'm going to have a boat. One day, I'm going to be up on Cheat Lake and a pontoon, and I'm going to be relaxing. Somebody like country, okay. I'm going to be, <laughs> I knew who that was. Nope. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be up on a pond, to, relaxing. One day, man, I can't wait. My old 85 Chevy pickup that everybody loves to make fun of is going to be awesome. One day, there won't be an exhaust leak. One day, the pain will look, oh, this is just what happens sometimes, okay? I, I get bored, I think. I, one day, one day, my kids will know Jesus. Some of you that are praying. One day, I'll be out of this financial bind. One day, one day, God's going to show up and heal me. One day, I'm going to get that job that I've worked hard for. All it takes, though, is just one day. One day with one person, God. That's it. A lot of times we think, well, it's going to take 37 years and it's going to take, you know, at least 37 minutes, you know, where it's going to take, I don't know what it's going to take, but it only takes one day with God. At any given moment, God can invade the reality of our lives and change absolutely everything. In the books, book of Acts, uh, there's a little two-word phrase there. One day at about three o'clock in the afternoon, Cornelius saw a vision. It only takes one day for us to see amazing things and to do something about it. One day is all it takes with God. And today can be your day. Jonathan knew that this was the day. 
This was the one day that I was not going to be in a cistern anymore. This is the one day that I was not going to run from the Philistines. This is one day that I'm not going to be hungry. I'm tired of being hungry. Okay, anybody? You're like, yeah, it's getting close to lunch. Hurry up. This is the day that God has made. And I'm going to do something with it. This is my day. This is the one day in history. And you may find yourself there this morning. This is your day. This is your day to say, look, this is my one day. This is my opportunity to see God do amazing things, to make some things certain in my life. And when you do that, it leads us to our second thought for today. You'll know that God will act on your behalf. I'm going to break this down for you. Uh, verse 6. This is, this is some deep water here. Jonathan said to his young Omer bear, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Let me break down perhaps for a moment. It's an adverb in this sentence, okay? And its other meanings are should, suppose, or may. He's saying perhaps. Have you ever read this and you're like, why would he say perhaps? Have you ever done that? Well, suppose he will. Maybe he will. You know what I mean by that? You, you raise at the end, and it's saying, well, maybe, I don't know. Perhaps, maybe, possibly, he, he might. But what follows this perhaps in the statement by Jonathan is what matters most and is the true meaning of this text. It's followed by this clause, the Lord will act on our behalf. It's not the perhaps it's the understanding that the Lord will act on our behalf. This is the statement that is filled with hope, not doubt. See, John said this is the one day when God is going to act on our behalf. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to be afraid. I, I do know there's a lot of guys on the other side of that cliff. I do know that they have more weapons, that they have chariots. The guys inside of the chariots have weapons. They could just run through here. <laughs> wipe us out. Perhaps God will do something amazing with my faith right now. Perhaps, perhaps he will. Perhaps he will. He will act on your behalf. Understanding that these weapons that they had were not weapons of this world but weapons that came from God to fight these powers that were greater than weapons on earth and principalities. The way that God will come through for you guys, you got to understand this, may not be the way that you expect, but God will act on your behalf. Third thing is this. Know that one act of obedience changes the world around you. Let me step back real quick. I think you showed a picture. Did you show a picture real quick? Let me step back just to give you that visual. I didn't want to miss this. This is that, that valley pass, right? This is that place where you, these guys are camped down in these cisterns and they're hiding out and they're, you know, they're, they're running for their lives basically, just not trying not to die. And then you see him say, perhaps God will help me, right? As he climbs that cliff, right? With his armor and everything. God will show up in a major way. I just didn't want to miss that. And that act of obedience will change everything around you. Verse 11, understand this. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, 
the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. At that moment, at that moment, they exposed themselves from hiding. They said, look, I know I can't make it hide in the hole. I know that, that I am nothing right now, and you guys are amazing. But who I have in me, who is fighting for me on my behalf, is greater than anything else in this world. There is a contingency factor on that statement, that if they see us and they tell us to come up, God's with us. He put out that fleece before God, this understanding that if, if they say these things, then we're doing it. Jonathan has remember said, we're doing it. We're taking the hill. We're taking the cliff. We're not going to stay here anymore. This is scary, though, is it not? This act of obedience, stepping out by faith into the uncertain, into the unknown, is so scary. I often tell the story, but I love to tell it again because it's a story of faith. It's a story when we were at this point in time a year ago, really, at this point in time, we were set to leave at the end of June. We were leaving Maryland and coming to, to West Virginia. We didn't have the finances to make it. We didn't have uh, really, we just nailed down a place probably three weeks prior to live. Didn't have a home, all that kind of stuff in that whole month of uncertainty. Didn't know what we were going to do. Didn't know. Had no idea. God put it on somebody's heart to bless Kara and I personally so that we could make the move. Financially, personally, financially blessed us. We had no idea how we would make it. We were able to get that first month's rent. We were able to do the security deposit. We were able to, to set up a home. Okay, that's hard. All of you guys have probably moved here for the most part from somewhere or moved at any point in time. That's very difficult. Normally when pastors move, there's a church that would help them move financially. We didn't have that. We were throwing up a peace sign, hitting 70 West. We knew where we were going. Didn't know how it was going to happen. But we knew he said go. We knew he said go. We had to have that act of obedience. And out of that, literally, most times, it was that feeling of we were stepping out and waiting for the floor to develop underneath. You know what I'm saying by that? Never before did we do that. Why? I like things predictable. I like things understood. I like a system of life. I like things where I like things. My garage right now, I just want to burn the whole thing down. Lose everything in it. Why? Because kids have things everywhere, bless their hearts. And I'm like, there's a hook right there for that particular thing. I put that hook right there for that thing. Why is it out in the middle? You know what I'm saying by that, right? I like things orderly and predictable. God's like, what I like is for you to be obedient. What I like for you to do is to do something crazy because what you do will then also help others as well in the process. Your active obedience will make a difference. Isn't that scary though? Maybe God's telling you, he's put on your heart that, hey, when you go to the grocery store, I want you to talk to somebody. I want you to just say, hello. I want you to just try that for me. Or maybe he's put on your heart as you've walked um, you know, up and down High Street or maybe as you, you, you go to your kid's ball game or, or you know whatever, fill in the blank. He has, he has prompted you to go say something to someone. You know, the Holy Spirit has said, hey, just go say hi to them. And you didn't do it. Why? Because you're scared. It's uncertain, right? I remember one time when I was back in um, Ellicott City, and I think I was, I think I was youth pastoring at that point. 
um, but I was preparing for a Sunday morning service that I was preaching, um, and I was in Panera Bread. Um, and I was sitting over there. I love the Panera Bread there. They had a nice little fireplace and stuff like that. And I was sitting there, and I look across, and there's this this uh, college-age girl that's sitting there. And I felt like, you know, there was a heaviness on my heart for her, like something was up. You know what I'm saying? Where something wasn't right with her, and I felt bad for her. I didn't know what it was. And uh, the Holy Spirit's like, hey, just just tell her that you're, you're you know, you're praying for her. Like, well, that's weird, right? Have you ever had somebody do that to you? You're like, I don't know you. Don't pray for me. I mean, um, thank you, because you're just so not used to it. But I said, hey, um, I'm actually a pastor, in t- which is easy, being a pastor. You can kind of segue, because uh, I had my Bible sitting out, too. And I was, I'm like, I was just studying. I just want to let you know, hey, that praying for you, and if something's you know off in your life, God loves you. Um, that might sound weird. That might sound whatever, but... Um, and she's like, I'm actually, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. In that moment, I'm like, okay, so that must have been gas pain or something. <laughs> because I totally missed it. I look like a fool up in Panera, and I'm like, tail between the legs, back to the Bible. But God's like, look, you acted in obedience. You really don't know where she's at. But she knows that somebody's praying for her and that God cares enough about her to send some weird dude that probably looks like a freak over to her at, Pan- over to her at Panera Bread to tell her that God loves her and someone's praying for her. I don't know what that ha- what happened with her. I never saw her again. But I do know this. I acted in obedience. Acted in obedience. That's so key for us because this act of obedience changes the world around us. We don't even realize it. It'll literally change the world around you when you act in obedience. Look at Israel. It gave them the, the, the ability to fight again. They, all of them came up out of these holes, these cisterns, these rocks, these places. And they fought again because one person was willing to take the cliff with his armor bearer behind him. One person was willing to act out of obedience. Look at Jesus and his single act of obedience, not letting that cup pass over, going to the cross for you and for me every single day for me. That act of obedience has forever changed my life, changed my kids' lives, changing your lives because of a single act of obedience from him and then on me and on you. Last thing is this. Know that when you act on what God has said, you do it with everything that's in you. You do so with everything you have. You see that picture in the verses that are on the screen of these armor bearers just climbing behind Jonathan as Jonathan's just sprawling out. That's another thing people do in West Virginia a lot. They, they climb rocks. Have you noticed that? They go rock climbing and stuff brother is not going to be tied to a rope to the side of a rock. Uh-uh. I, that, there is no rope strong enough for this chassis right here to be tied to it. No carabiner that I feel will hold the weight of this man right here, okay? No. And then you just see a picture, though, of Jonathan scaling it with nothing. His big old sword, his armor bearer behind him like, this dude is nuts. Can you Can you imagine the picture here? So tired climbing up that mountain, climbing up that cliff, so beat. But what does he do as soon as he gets to the top? 
starts taking them out. Do you get the visual with me? I'm not promoting death by the sword, obviously, okay? Not whatsoever. That's the hard part about reading the Old Testament sometimes. But it's this understanding that they acted with everything they had and God gave them the power to do it. He gave them the power to see it happen in their lives. Reminded of that story in First Kings with Elijah and um, how he, he challenged that woman to give up all that she had so that the prophet could have his last meal, one meal. And she had nothing for her and her son. And it makes you think, do you give with everything you have, even to the point of it possibly infringing on your life and your quality of life? God's asking you to go all in with this. He's asking you to climb the cliff without ropes. He's asking you to say, look, I don't know what's on the other side, but I know that you're with me every single step of the way, God, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to go for it. Although it is uncertain, in the past, you have brought me victory and you will do it again. There's a song that we're going to play at the conclusion uh, here in just a few moments. Um, Rob, you can start it now, Rob. Um, and this song is so contradictory, and you'll hear the, the lyrics here in just a moment of Christian faith because the lyrics that are that are pointed out saying thank you for the trials, thank you for the hurt, thank you for the pain, thank you for these things, God, that you brought my way because through them I have been able to see victory, I have been able to see greater things because you allowed me, you entrusted me to this uncertain circumstance. We look at it as a hit every time, don't we? Woe is me. Versus God trying to make himself known through you. He loves to take a test and turn it into a testimony. He loves to take a hard place in your life and make it a place of life that you can build life from and say, this is what happened to me, but this is what God did with it. We have to allow him to redeem. We have to allow him to take these uncertain things, these hurts, these pains, this whatever it may be, and let him work with it. Let him use it. Not woe is me. Wow, you choose you chose me. You choose me for this task. Why? Because he's building something in you. In uncertain times, he's building something in you that will last. It's not a six percent mountain moment. Right? Most mountain peaks, right? Our six mountains are found six percent of the earth. It's the other ninety-four that really makes it happen. This is that moment, uncertain things, where he grounds our faith. He grounds our belief that he is with us, that he wants to do greater things. Amen? This is what I want you to do. Um, I want you to listen to this, and I, I want you, if you are challenged uh, to respond, Kara and I would love to pray with you if you want. We also have our team uh, of our leaders here that would pray with you as well. We believe in that we join together in something, prayer so that we can rejoice in that in the end. Because if two or more agree on anything, it can happen. It will happen in the name of Jesus. So we want to pray with you. If you feel like you're in the midst of uncertain times, we want to agree with you that God will come through. Um, if you feel like you don't have a relationship with God even, uh, that you're at that place where you're like in a Saul kind of place where you just lost it. He did great things, but 
you don't feel it anymore. We want to pray with you for that too. We want to be with you. We want to journey with you. We want to be your family. If you feel like you need to go, we love you the same on that as well. We just ask that you take that Connect card and stop by the Connection Center and somebody will greet you, give you a hug if you like them, or let you go. Because that's the kind of family we are. But we're believing for greater things in your life. You're the church. He chose you to do great things. He, he, he allowed tough things to happen so that you can come out of the end and say, it is well with my soul. Through it all, he's going to do great things. you got to let him. you got to let him. So I'm just going to pray, and if you need anything from us, please just slide up. Other folks will be heading out. Grab coffee when you leave. Fill up on the way out. But we want to believe with you for great things, that God will do great things, and that he has done great things, and uh, that he has a plan for your life. So, Lord, we thank you today. We thank you, God, that uh, as we survey the past, as Jonathan did that day, he looked back and, and, and looked and said, God, you've done great things before. We didn't see it written, but we see it in his heart that you've done it before. Do it again. Do it again. So, God, we pray that you do great things in our midst, that you do great things in this time because you've done it before. We want to see you do it again. Lord, if we need to give our lives to you for the very first time, we do that. If we need to rededicate, we need to re-up on our faith with you, we do that. If we need to believe again for great things, we want to do that as well. Though the future is uncertain, life is certainly found in you. And we know that, Lord. And we thank you for it. So God, we release your people today in a world that is uncertain to a Savior that is certain, that is grounded, and we find our faith in you, and we love you, and we thank you. Give us an amazing week. In Jesus' name we pray.